Welcome to another edition of The Best Business Mind, hosted by serial entrepreneur and author Mark Kramer. Tune into The Best Business Minds to listen to thought-provoking interviews with best-selling business book authors who are today's leading innovators, entrepreneurs, and industry experts from around the globe. Welcome to another edition of The Best Business Minds, where we interview business leaders and academics that write thought-provoking books. I'm Mark Kramer, a serial entrepreneur who consults with family businesses and entrepreneurs. For the next year, I'll be teaching entrepreneurship for Vinh University in Hanoi, Vietnam. Tonight, I'm in Ho Chi Minh City. So, hello from Ho Chi Minh City. Uh, please welcome our former, former University of Arkansas Chancellor, Dr. John White, author of Why It Matters. And I love the title of that book, and it was an amazing book to read. And so, um, Dr. White, why don't you start off by telling us about your professional background? Well, thank you, Mark. But I'm going to start off by thanking you for including me in this series. I really appreciate you doing so. Uh, my background is a is a very different, I think, from the the typical academic, if you will, in that I've managed to spend time in industry and in government as well as in academe in terms of uh, my service, for example, on uh, governing boards for organizations. I've, I've served on the board of directors for eight corporations, uh, uh, 11 governing boards for professional organizations, uh, seven advisory boards. And I had uh, the opportunity to head up the engineering directorate at the National Science Foundation for a three-year period. Uh, was Dean of Engineering at Georgia Tech uh, for six years, 11 years as Chancellor at the University of Arkansas, uh, president of a lot of different organizations along the way. And then I wound up uh, having the chance to teach a leadership course. Um, when I stepped down as Chancellor at Arkansas, returned to the faculty, um, several faculty members said, you need to teach a leadership course. And I said, I have no idea how I'd do that because every course I've taught has got equations in it. And I said, you know, I'm an engineering professor. How do I teach a leadership course? And uh, they kept on. So finally, I went to meet with my mentor, Paul Torgerson, who was uh, my department head at Virginia Tech when I was on the faculty there. He was also dean of engineering. He helped me when I was dean of engineering at Georgia Tech. And then he was the president at, at uh, Virginia Tech. And I asked Paul about. And he said, you need to do it. And I said, well, I have no idea what book I would use. And he said, use Steve Samples, The Contrarian's Guide to Leadership. And I said, well, Steve sent me the book, but, uh, but I haven't read it. When I read it, I found out that he and Warren Bennis co-taught a course on leadership at Southern Cal. So I called to talk to Steve. He wasn't there, told his executive assistant what I wanted to do. And she said, let me put you in touch with someone who works behind the scenes with Dr. Sample and Dr. Bennis. And when she came on the phone and I said, I'm John White, she said, oh, I know who you are. I grew up in Fayetteville, Arkansas. I came to the University of Arkansas and majored in sociology, finished, came out to Southern Cal, got my doctorate in sociology with an emphasis on leadership. What can I do to help? And so she uh, then I, I said, send me everything you got about the course. So I then designed a syllabus around that course and taught it, had nine offerings of it. And uh, the kids in the class said, uh, consistently put these kind of comments 
on the anonymous posting that the university did on their course assessments and said, uh, it's the most demanding course I've taken, it's the best course I've taken, and it changed my life. And that is until the last time that I taught it. And one student said, Dr. White said it would be the most demanding it was. He said it'd be the best course it was. He said it would change my life, but it didn't. <laughs> Saved my life. And, oh. when, and so I thought, hmm. And then the, the last time I offered the course and students knew that I was going to be retiring and they said, please, please write a book and try to capture in the book what happened in this class. I said, well, there's no way to really capture in a book what happened in this class because we caught lightning in a bottle here. That it's uh, my 60 plus years of teaching, Mark, this was the most satisfying experience I've ever had. Uh, what we would do of the 16 weeks in a semester, 15 of those weeks, we had a guest leader come and meet with the class. And we would be seated down front in the class and I would have a little conversation just like you and I had just before we started up this interview. And about 15 minutes into it, I would turn to the students and I'd say, does anyone have a question for our guest? And remember, we have two rules. What's said here stays here and no recording what the guests are saying. So I don't want to have to read about it in the newspaper tomorrow, what they said. So then it would begin and it was the students' questions. And I remember Greg Brown, who was the chairman CEO of Motorola, uh, when he walked into the classroom, he said, now I know the syllabus says I'm going to leave here at 7, 7.15, but I'm not leaving as long as you've got questions. That plane will not leave the airport as long, long as I'm here. So don't you worry about it. I'm here for you. Well, finally, about 8.15, I said, I'm sorry, I've got to call this to a halt because he's got other things I need to cover. He came over and said, I haven't had so much fun. I can't tell you when can I be back again this semester. And I said, no, I've got it fully scheduled. <laughs> come back next semester. I said, I only do it in the fall. Can I come back next year? He came every time. And uh, he was just a big, big hit with the students. But during the semester of the 15 guest leaders, usually two to three of them would be in tears talking about the the challenges of leadership and what it meant and the sacrifices, but they would also talk about the joys and all of leadership. So during the pandemic, I thought, hmm, I'm going to hunker down. I'm going to see if I can go back. So I contacted all the guest leaders that had come and I had I had copied down lots of things that they had said and uh, gave them all the quotes, said, do I have your permission to include these in the book I'm doing? And got their permission. So then I prepared the book, Why It Matters, Reflections on Practical Leadership. Because it's not about leadership theory. It's really more about leadership practice. And so I drew on my own experiences uh, in academe, in government, and in industry, I had started a consulting firm, built it up, and then sold it to Coopers and Librand, and it's on all these corporate boards. And so I thought, I think I can bring to the subject a broader perspective than what you usually find in leadership books, because typically they represent what that person's career path has been, and it's usually in just one of those. It's either in industry, or it's in academe, or it's in government, but it's not included in all of those. So that's what I tried to do. I don't think that I succeeded. I think I wound up overemphasizing what I did in academe 
and and that's a tough tough one. I remember when uh, the CEO at, at Motorola introduced me. He he had some of their high rising uh, potentials to be top management people, and he wanted me to speak to him. He said, "I thought my job was tough until I saw what John White was dealing with." And he said, "My job as CEO at Walmart is is nothing compared to being the chancellor of a university of like the University of Arkansas." So it's it, it's a tough job, but. Oh, I can tell you from spending 20 years in academia and the private sector, academia is way harder than the private sector. The politics is just crazy. And we're going to get to a question uh, about that uh, as well. So you asked the question, are leaders born or can they be developed? What's your opinion and what's your experience there? Well, of course, all leaders have been born, Mark, or they wouldn't be around. But that's that's a, that's a little smart aleck response to the question. So, yes, I think that there are some characteristics that you can see based on the sort of personality, if you will, where there are going to be some that early in age, you can go to a kindergarten class, you can watch young young kids, and you can tell some of them just naturally start leading the, the group. But certainly can be developed. Otherwise, why do we have all these courses? Why do we have these books and everything else about leadership? The business about, is it taught or can it be caught? It caught or taught? Well, it's. I thought that that Chris Lofgren, who did the foreword for my book, really did a nice job of addressing that question. And he said, it's a bit of both, that there's some people that seem to have the natural tendencies for leadership and others that don't but become very effective leaders. And so it's not all about personality. In fact, every personality type can wind up being a very effective leader. Um, and, and so that's the thing that I think, yeah, well, I loved what Steve Sample said early in his book. He said, leadership is situational and contingent. And so it's uh, all about the situation as to what kind of leadership style or approach you should use. It's not a cookie cutter kind of thing. Um, and I, I mean, there's, I, I believe that, well, with, there's some, some exceptions, of course, people who are suffering from particular disabilities might not be able to lead. But by and large, I think in a given situation that almost anyone will step forward and lead in that situation. So yes, I believe that it can be developed, but I also believe that people have inherently within them some things that will cause them to step up and lead when it's needed. Uh, others have no interest in it, don't want to do it, but even they, in a crisis situation that might emerge, you wind up them stepping up and they would often be the ones least expected to step up to lead. Uh, I think we found that in the pandemic, that there were individuals who stepped forward and led when those people who had the responsibility for leading didn't want to step into it. And others did. Yeah, I agree with you. And I think we've seen over the years, I mean, Harry Truman, you and I talked about before, yeah. Uh, Harry Truman was a haberdasher, right? Yes. And and worked his way up to being a senator. And even when Roosevelt picked him, he didn't pick him for leadership skills. No. And he turned out to be one of the best presidents the country ever had. Yeah. 
Yeah, so it's interesting what kind of people will step up. Um, I've worked in academia, as I mentioned, for 20 years, which is one of the most political environments. How did you manage to survive and succeed? I mean, 11 years is a long time to be in that position as chancellor. Yeah, well, uh, Henry Kissinger is credited with saying the politics in higher education are so intense because the stakes are so low. <laughs> <laughs> And uh, I, I don't, I, so I, when I was with Kissinger, I asked him, I said, I gave him the quote and I said, did you say that? And he said, I don't remember ever saying that. So I don't know that he actually said it, but he's credited with it. But the politics are very intense, as you know, Mark. And so how, how did I deal with it? Basically. <clears throat> and what did you learn from it? Well, I, well I, I ignored it as best I could. I just went and I was in a very different situation, I think, than a lot of people. For me, when I was the chancellor at the University of Arkansas, <clears throat> it was not a job. Um, in many ways, it was a calling to do that, returning home, returning to my undergraduate alma mater to do this. And um, so I, I just, um, I, I, I've, I was just brutally honest and frank about things. And in fact, one of the trustees said to me, <clears throat> you're saying some mighty harsh things. Most people be run out of the state by now for saying those things, <clears throat> but you're, you're getting by. And I think the reason is because you grew up in this state and people know you're back here because you care about the state. So I basically tried to ignore it. Now, I think that's also one of the th reasons that I wasn't as effective as I should have been in dealing with the legislators. Now, I had a great relationship with the governor, had the, the governors that were there while I was chancellor, I had a great relationship with them. But among the others, I just, I, I didn't do well. Now, the chair of the board told me, he said, I think one of the big reasons that you have had trouble with the legislators is you don't suffer fools gladly. And I said, what do you mean? He said, well, it's hard for you to have someone telling you how to run the university when they don't have your experience, background, and education. The fact that they might have, have just not even have a college degree or something and that they're telling you how to do it. And I think that, that he was right. I, I should have been uh, a lot more uh, patient, listened better, done that. I, I just, when I came, I thought I was just going to be doing it for five years. Had I realized I was going to be doing it for 11 years, I would have started quite differently than the way I started. But I just thought I only have a limited amount of time to bring about the kind of changes that I think are needed in the organization. And so I really, really hit the ground running. I'd have been much better off if I had slow walked it in the beginning. And, well, you uh, even mentioned in the book, there was a guy when you told him that you wanted to make this a top tier research uh, institution. And he goes, we don't need to do that. You know, exactly. Essentially spend more on football uh, than uh, doing that. But yet that's where you attract the bright, best and brightest and actually more dollars into the university. Yeah. And, and create more jobs in the state of Arkansas, which at the time you were there definitely needed 
those opportunities. So it was smart on your part not to fall for fall in like so many presidents of universities do just to keep legislators and some alumni happy. Yeah. Well, I I was I applaud you for that. Yeah, I didn't I didn't need the job uh, that I was positioned financially where I could retire. I didn't have to do that. And uh, and I think I hope that that didn't make me come across as being insensitive or arrogant or anything like that. But I felt like I had I I came home for a reason. And that that was what I was going to do. Um, I got a call from uh, uh, Texas A&M came after me several times. uh, Perry Atkinson, a, a good friend of mine, wanting me to come out to to be the president of Texas A&M, be a candidate for it. And I said, Perry, let me tell you that if you had the approval of the regents there to make the offer to me, and I could I could write my own ticket and name any of salary I wanted, there's no amount of money that would cause me to come and do that. Because the reason I'm here is I came back home and this I came for a reason to try to make a difference for my home state. And otherwise, I would have stayed at Georgia Tech. I had the greatest job in the world. I was dean of engineering at Georgia Tech and I loved it. And I would have retired there. So I I was a very different situation, Mark, than a lot of people. Uh, But now look at Gordon Gee. Gordon is the president now at West Virginia University. That's he started my alma mater. Yeah. And I was there when he first became president. There you go. He the was first time. Dean, first dean of the time. law school, became the yeah. president, yeah. went to Colorado, went to Ohio yeah. State, uh-huh. right. then went to went to Brown, went to Vanderbilt, right? Went yeah. back. Uh, went, and then he goes, next thing you know, he's back at Ohio State. And now he's back at West Virginia. I mean, it's amazing with Gordon uh, what he's been able to do. And he's been very effective every place he's been. Well, I'm not that. I'm not. I'm not that kind of leader. It's not. It's not. But Gordon, I, I think the world of Gordon. We we're close, but I'm not Gordon, and so I had to be me. And so that's. And I think that's the thing that throughout my journey, I have been comfortable in my own skin. I haven't felt the need to try to pretend to be anyone else. I've tried to let you know who you're dealing with from the very beginnings. Play with my cards up. There should be no surprises. Uh, you know what you're getting. And then to be consistent and and walk my talk, basically, and just say, this is who I am and this is what I do. And if you want to do something else, then get someone else to do it. So well, glad you st- uh, stood your ground. And um, President Gee would maybe remember me because <laughs> uh, when he first became president and I graduated in 82, I decided I would invite personally President Reagan to be our commencement speaker. That didn't go over very well with President Gee in the Democratic state. And so he had called me into his office and let me know how unhappy he was and had to let the White House know that uh, President Reagan wasn't invited to speak at our commencement. But Mark, I'll tell you this. He will remember you. He has an amazing (laughs) memory. He can meet freshmen. And when they come across at commencement, he can call them by name. 
he, he has had an unbelievable uh, ability to do that. He well, would he remember you, Mark. He really would. Well, <laughs> but not for a good reason, unfortunately. <laughs> well, no, but isn't that the case for a lot of people we remember? <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. So what is your definition of leadership and, and what are the ingredients of a great leader, which you call the keys to as? Uh, keys to A's, actually. Keys yeah, to A's. A's. I mean, yeah, A's, keys yes. to A's. Well, I, in, the, in the book, I give a couple of people's definitions. I, I really liked Bill Clinton, uh, who said, bringing people together in pursuit of a common cause, developing a plan to achieve it, and uh, staying with it until the goal is achieved. Well, uh, in that, he, he you know, you got to have a common cause, you got to have a plan, you got to have persistence, you got to have a goal, you got to accomplish something. But I, I would just step back and say leadership is the process of aligning and equipping people to achieve an organization's mission. Uh, and, and the organization could be, it doesn't have to be a big company or big organization. It could be just what the team is. What's, what's your mission? What is it that you're trying to accomplish? And, and the big th part of that is getting the alignment. I think alignment is absolutely a key. Now, I, I, I have 25 keys to A's uh, there in the book. Uh, these are 25 words, all starting with the letter A, that I think that a leader has to pay attention to. And it starts with attitude, and it ends with ability. And in between are all kinds of other words that start with A. And authenticity is one of those. Uh, about being authentic. Um, I, th I think that it all begins, though, with an attitude. And, and that attitude is having a positive attitude of being an energy giver, not an energy taker. Um, uh, in that list is also the issue of adversity, of that I think that those people who have dealt with adversity have more empathy than some other people do. And I give an example in there of uh, uh, adversity that I faced, but out on my website, because by the way, Mark, when I submitted the manuscript for publication, they said, huh, this is too big. It'd be 625 pages and nobody's going to buy a 625 page leadership book. You got to cut it in half. So I took seven chapters out and put it out on my website. And uh, three of those chapters deal with governing boards, uh, corporate boards, uh, university boards, nonprofit boards, sort of thing, but also four chapters uh, deal with what I called echoes. That's that's great leadership writings from the past, and it starts with Sun Shoes, The Art of War, then goes over to Xenophon's writings on Cyrus the Younger and Cyrus the Great, and then Machiavelli's The Prince, and then eight of Shakespeare's plays and leadership lessons drawn from those. So I put those out on my website. Um, but then in the, the notion about keys to A's, I had that as a chapter and the editor wanted me to remove it, said it kind of uh, repeats a lot of the things in the book. And so I mentioned that to my son and he said, Dad, he said, I think that's the best chapter in your book. Don't yeah, leave I it out. So I put it to, at the end as kind of to wrap it all up together about those things that you need to think about as a leader. Uh, and and so that it, but it, in terms of the the values and the attributes of leadership 
integrity has got to be a foundational aspect there that it, you've got to be recognized as a person of integrity, I think, in order to to really have people trust you because trust is basically it's the, it's the thing that fuels your engine that keeps you going. If people trust you and if you trust them, you can accomplish so much. That's the thing that I think the students and my classes understood that, that I cared for them. And then, and then we developed relationships through that. And through those relationships, you can get people to accomplish things they never thought they could accomplish. Uh, I would set goals that were aspirational goals. Uh, I, I was doing this before Jim Collins wrote this book, Good to Great, and talked about BHAGs, bold, uh, hairy, audacious goals. In my high school uh, commencement address, I used a quotation from Thoreau, if you build castles in the air, your work not be in vain. That's where they should be now, put foundations under them. That I, throughout my career, I've always set high goals. And, and those high goals I would set for others, I would set those for myself as well. Uh, that people tended to think I was a perfectionist and all that. But no, they just didn't seem to realize that I'm often pleased, but never satisfied. I just think we can always do better, that we can we can achieve more if we set high goals. So I set hairy, big, hairy, audacious goals, and uh, we didn't accomplish them all. But I think we got much further along than if I'd set low goals. Uh, I mean, what's the satisfaction of So you satisfied all your goals. Well, anybody could do that. It's strive to 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 get to the top of Mount Everest. Don't just be looking for the shortest little hill that you could climb. In fact, that that was a thing that I used, uh, particularly at Georgia Tech when I was there, because our rivalry with the University of Georgia was intense. But um, there was there was an author from University of Georgia who wrote uh, a lot of. He was an, uh, he wrote columns in the, the Atlanta Journal Constitution, and. Um, but one of his books that I, I just really loved, it was Shoot Low Boys, They're Riding Shetland Ponies. <laughs> that, that, you know, so I think too often we shoot low. And Louis Grizzard, he was a great humorist, just funny as he could be. But that book just, it just sent a message to me about shoot low boys, we're riding Shetland ponies. So every organization that I've led, I've tried to make sure that we were not shooting low but we were shooting high uh, and not just aim for the sky, but rather to, to use aspirational goals, to just stretch, to make sure that you were going beyond what people would think you might be able to accomplish. And what I found was that people will rise to the occasion. As long as you let them know that you're there for them, you care for them. And I, I would say, I, I tell my students and, and it was, it was troubling to me that when I would say to students, I love you, I think for some of them, they'd never heard those words before in their life, that I wanted them to know that I cared about them, that I was always available if they needed to talk about anything. And one day I noticed that there was a student who hadn't been to class for a couple of times and I contacted him. I said, come see me, please come see me. 
he was a young African-American student who was gay and his life had been threatened and he was considering suicide. And I just, I hugged him, let him know I cared about him, got him in touch with the people and university that could help him with that. By the way, he graduated. He has come back. He's very active as an alumnus in the department and all. But, you know, I wanted kids to know I cared, that that's the whole reason I'm doing it. It was because of them. That's it. Well, you know, when you set high goals, right, it attracts the best and brightest. If you set low goals, then they're not challenged. And hence, you can't it can't attract great talent. Isn't that true? Yeah, oh, absolutely. In fact, that was the thing that I, when I, I was trying to turn around things there about students coming to university. So I went after the best and brightest and offered. And in fact, I said, we can't go buy athletes, but we can buy students. We came out with very, very nice scholarships. And boy, I mean, they came. Why? Because they're magnets. They bring other students with them. You know, the the trustees didn't understand that in order for to increase the enrollment at the University of Arkansas, I raised the admission standards and I increased tuition. They said, wait, you can't do that and expect to increase enrollment. I said, you watch. Raise the standards, make it tougher to get in, make it more expensive to get in, but then also provide scholarships, need-based scholarships for those students who were really good, but have would have difficulty dealing with that. Well, you don't go looking for the cheapest doctor you can find, do you? No, no you want to get the, the best. best doctor. You want to get yeah. the best doctor and you will try anything you can to do that. Well, enrollment just started taking off after that. Um, you talked about boards a minute ago and you, in your particular case, the governor picks the board for you. And you've been on boards where uh, um, people are brought on by the CEO and they could do it. So what's the difference in terms of operating in each of those environments? And how do you make sure that you work well with the board and you also are able to get quality people to be a part of it and actually have a real stake in it? So what's been your experience and what do you advise, especially CEOs of entrepreneurial companies who want to have strong boards that will help them build great companies? First of all, in that case, let's address that one. They need to add people who will bring value to the board. They need to add value. And uh, there's, I will, I, I, out on LinkedIn, I'll be doing some posts on governing boards, and I'm going to address these particular ones. I've got uh, five different posts that I'll be doing about governing boards, Mark, and they'll be coming out, but I, I try to address that issue then. But for now, you need, they need to be qualified. They need, they need to be, have time available to do it. And there needs to be a good fit for the board. Fit is very, very important. Oftentimes people want to be on the board because they have an agenda and their agenda is usually to change things. Um, and and they come on thinking this is what I'm and they're a single kind of issue focused board members. And that's the only thing they're focused on. Well, 
the board has a broad responsibility in terms of what it has responsibility to do for the organization. And so if you've got just a one trick pony kind of a director and that's all they're interested in, it can be it can be disruptive to a board. Um, so I, I think that you, you need to have diversity on the board. And I'm not just talking about the, the DEI business. I'm talking about real diversity of how they think, what their experiences are, that they can bring different perspectives to the board. You don't need a lot of Tweedledees and Tweedledums who think alike and look alike and all of that. And so I think that, that those are essentials for having the board. Uh, the governor, when they appoint, often they wind up being people who have been, been supporters of their campaigns or something like that. And you can run into all kinds of issues with that. Uh, but also when people, like in Colorado, that the, the board, they, they will run for board positions. They're elected also within Michigan. They have some of their universities in Michigan. They're elected by the, the public to the board. So it can turn into a really difficult situation. In fact, right now in higher education, because of politicization that has occurred with appointments that governors are making to accomplish particular political agendas, that I think that it is much tougher now to get someone to be a leader of a public university than it is a private university. That within private universities, typically those boards are formed without any kind of political agendas. And so that right now it's a tough time uh, within a lot of states uh, particularly the southern states, uh, because of the, the politics manifesting itself in terms of board appointments, even presidential appointments at universities and so forth. Um, so I've, I've talked with a number of uh, colleagues as, as also individuals who are currently university presidents or chancellors, and there are just certain states that you wouldn't have any interest in going there because the politics that's manifested itself within the boards. Yeah, um, horrible. Yeah. Um, you wrote that during the pandemic, you thought about what leadership should be rather than what it was. So apparently it wasn't easy. What, what did you learn? Well, what I learned is that we have a paucity of exemplary leaders. We just do. People are not stepping up and going into leadership positions. I think that particularly in government, uh, an awful lot of that, frankly, is because of the, the attention social media and all of that has made it very difficult for someone to go because they're going to get so attacked and everything. Uh, I was asked by a, an engineering dean, uh, said, if you had it to do over again, would you? become the chancellor at the university. And I said, not in today's climate, not in today's climate, because I don't have, personally, I don't have the makeup that would be required to be successful in that environment. Um, that um, it, it just gonna, it takes, it's gonna take someone who can deal with the, the challenges being posed today in this environment. And I'm just thankful that we've got people who are willing to stand up and do that right now. But I, I was so disappointed in how 
and particularly within the U.S. Congress, uh, about that we just did not respond quickly to the COVID uh, pandemic as a nation. We're very slow to respond. Uh, we weren't the only ones. It happened all over. Um, and and I watched, and the things that I was telling students in my leadership class that you should do as a leader, it wasn't being done by leaders. Things I was saying you shouldn't do, those were the things that leaders were doing. You know, it's, um, so I think that the COVID made a big shift in the world. I remember we went over, I was on the Motorola board and we went to China and met with the President Jiang Zemin in China. And he, usually he would have an interpreter there with him, but he dismissed the interpreter and he just met with us and talked just in English. He, Bob Galvin, who was then the, he, he was the one who brought Motorola to China. At the time, President Jiang Zemin was the mayor in Shanghai. And he thought the world of Bob Galvin and Bob's son, Chris, was the CEO at Motorola at the time. And, and he said that he was watching CNN while he was working when the first plane hit the first tower. And when the second one hit, he picked up the phone and called the White House. And he didn't expect anyone would be there. He didn't expect that President Bush would be there that they would have him away, but he said, I want to do whatever we can to help deal with this, that we we have to stamp out terrorism in the world. And he, he started talking about the the notion of the trade-off between public safety and and individual freedom. And he said that governments reach a, a he called it a See, he called it an inflection point, but I think he really meant an, an, an inflection point. Uh, no, he, he a stationary point instead of inflection point. He said that as you, you can, as you increase the controls you have in government for safety, you give up things on individual freedom and vice versa. He said, governments have to reach a point where they feel like that that's where they're satisfied. He said, you're going to find it very different here than you would find it in many cities in, in the U.S. relative to individual safety. But you also will give up things on individual freedoms. And he said, after the World Trade Center, you're going to find the universe, the uni, uni, United States of America is going to shift where its inflection point is. What he meant was stationary point is. What he meant was that we were going to be giving up individual freedoms in order to have increased safety aspects. And certainly we did go through a shift. But I think that the pandemic has caused another kind of shift for us. It's the polarization that has occurred. And it's not just here, it's, it's all over the world that the pendulum didn't swing, it jerked, that we tend to view the world now as binary. You're either for me or you're against me. And this 
polarization that has occurred is calling for leadership that will find the middle, will find a, pa- a way to bring people together in the middle. And it means that all sides have to be willing to compromise, to say, I'm willing to satisfy with good instead of striving for perfection or greatness, that it's going to be good enough. And I think that's what real leadership today is challenged to do, is to find that middle ground. And I didn't see that happening with the pandemic. It seemed like we were separating ourselves. Those who would want to be vaccinated, those who didn't, those who would be willing to wear a mask and those who wouldn't. We were turning it into a a partisan political issue as opposed to dealing with something that was facing us as a safety issue, we were we were not looking for the middle. I, I'm a long-winded response to your question, Mark, but, but it's you know, been so really many, troubling to me. But it's amazing that so many countries have pulled together both left uh, left and right yes. on issues uh, regarding COVID, issues regarding um, gun safety, yes, and and we cannot manage to get it together. And I'm in Vietnam now. And all these Asian countries combined have less people dying through gun violence uh, than just one state in the United States. I mean, I mentioned I'm from Philly. We have over 500 murders last year. And yet you don't have all of those countries combined with like a half, not China, but because I don't know the number there, but, you know, half a billion people. And you don't have these numbers because they all managed to get it together. Uh, And so did the other countries. So it's unfortunate. One of the things I want to ask you is you uh, what do you mean that the key to successful leadership is followers? Well, you've got to have followers that what does that mean then that says that you've got to get people to agree to follow you that it's. Peter Drucker was way ahead of the times when he focused on knowledge workers. And that's basically what we're faced with today in most of society. It's not the blue collar workers so much. It's now the the leading leaders, the, the knowledge workers that you've got to get people willingly to agree to pursue this, this business about aligning them uh, to achieve an organization's mission that they've got to come together if you you can go out and say i'm the leader of the band and here we go and you look behind you got no one behind you if you don't have followers then you're not a leader and so you've got to find a way to get people to buy in and what that means is you've got to address what's in it for me what's in it for me that you've got to deliver a message about why this is important for you as well as for the organization. That's what servant leadership is all about, I think, is it's the leader is serving the followers, that it's almost turning the organization upside down, not unlike what really happens in a university, where it's the faculty who are in really in charge. It's not the chancellor or the vice chancellors or the deans, it's the, the faculty. So that says that you need to, to let the followers influence far more the direction of the organization, the the goals of the organization. I mean, 
there are a lot of myths about leadership. And one of those is that leaders make the decisions. No, no, ultimately they're held responsible for those decisions. But what you want is to have the followers making the decisions because if they do, they're more likely to be implemented and followed through on. If it's just a top-down kind of thing, hey, it's not gonna last very long. So you've but, got to have followers. But what do you say about when followers are really not attuned or being misled as we've been seeing over the last decade, and not just in the US, but around the world, and or throughout history, I mean, people followed Hitler, Stalin, a whole bunch of really bad people. So you can have the followers, but if they're not uh, educated and thoughtful, you can have um, them promoting leaders who are dragging everybody down until somebody good steps up. Well, that's true. How do you so get around you that? Have- That's why you have to have it all based on a certain set of core values. What is it that you're trying to accomplish as core values? And it also means that you have to have a lot of communication. There's got to be a lot of dialogue and discussion about it. Um, One of the things that that I have in the book is what I, I call the secret sauce of leadership, which is listening, learning, loving, and then leading. So you need to listen, listen to what the people are saying that your followers, and then you've got to develop from that, learn from that, and and then articulate, okay, what about, this is the plan that moves us forward, but always addressing what's in it for me, uh, that, that, um, I just, I've been very fortunate in that I've, I've been in in organizations in which were good, but the challenge was getting them to understand they needed to be great, that they were in some sense satisfied with where they were. Uh, And that's like they're in a rut and they're comfortable because they've carpeted their rut. No, no, let's, we need to continue to move forward and to do that. And so that's the, the big challenge is getting the people to recognize that business as usual is a failing strategy for the future, that we're in a world of change and change is occurring at an accelerating rate. And so for us, we have got to change. So what direction should we change in? And it, it, you know, you're gonna have people in the organization that are gonna be very, very bright about here's some things we should consider and get the dialogue going. And that was the, the nice thing I thought in Leadership Without Easy Answers with Ronald Hyde. He's, he's, he said, we've got to, to, there are two kinds of problems, those that are technical problems and those that require uh, an evolutionary kind of change. Well, if it's a technical problem, those are easy to solve. But the others, the ones that require, it's not an easy solution. You've got to get the people who are impacted by the solution to be the ones that develop the solution. And so that's what we have to have with the followers is getting them to participate in developing the solution. Uh, It shouldn't be a top-down imposed kind of a solution. 
It's uh, and the followers have to realize there's another side to it and come to a happy medium. Oh, that, yeah, absolutely. Um, because we're a house divided now in the United States, and it's it it can't it's not sustainable. Uh, and I hate to see us become one of the empires uh, that ends up in the history books because all great empires, right? Uh, fall from within, not from yeah. outside. Yes. Um, I really liked when you wrote that the movement between liked and disliked lists tends to be a one-way street. As a leader makes more decisions, more people place the leader on their dislike list. Why is that? And can leaders explain things logically that people will reconsider their opinion? Or as a leader, you can't worry about that. Uh, and every single press of a country goes through this. Uh, but do corporate leaders face that, uh, especially if the value of the company's stock keeps going up? Oh, indeed. It doesn't, even if the stock is going up, the, the shareholders might be happy, but you can find all kinds of unhappiness within the organization because it, that old saying about friends come and go, but enemies accumulate. Uh, yeah. Well, that's, that's what happens as, as decisions are made that someone's not in favor of that decision. You just quickly, you get moved from the like over to the disliked list. And what I had to do was I just had to not be worried about that, that what I needed to continue to be focused on is what my goal was, what the objective was, why I came home to do this and just stay the course, stay the course. And um, it was through persistence. Uh, then we were able to accomplish a lot, but you could be easily discouraged and dissuaded from a, pursuing that if you let the naysayers uh, decide the path forward. A at some point, you just have to say, this is what I believe and, and, and just pursue it and just stay the course. Uh, now, that you should be listening to others. You should be constantly thinking about it, but don't give up on what your goal is. Just pursue those goals stay after it um it, it's easily more easily said than done i can tell you because i mean there were i shed more tears i think during my first three years as chancellor than i did in the rest of my adult life because i was so frustrated with trying to affect change but once the once the flagship began to turn then people could see progress was occurring they went from believing it was impossible to believing that it might happen and then believing it was probable. And then things really began to move. Overcoming inertia is really, really tough, Mark. Um, and, and then also there's the, there, some people I think just thought they could just out, outweigh me, outlast me. And that, that if it made it tough enough, I'd just give up and just walk away. But I just wasn't going to do that. And uh, finally, I got to a point where I felt like, yes, we were able to do what I came home to try to do. And I felt good about handling the reins, handing the reins over to a successor and say, it's now yours. You take it to a new level. Well, doesn't as a leader, especially when you've gone past 10 years, isn't there a sell by date? Uh, that it's just time for change, uh, no matter how good the leader is, there's a point where people even stop listening to you <laughs> and, and you've got to go and, and bring somebody else in with a, yeah. a, a it's, a it's better to, to leave to when, 
Yeah, it's better to leave when people don't want you to leave rather than leave when people are wondering, why is it taking this long for you to leave? Right. And uh, yeah. I had gotten to the point where I, I felt like I had, well, and, and I mentioned this in the book, that when I, I went to the Walton family to get $50 million for the business school, I gave them a promise I'd stay there for five years. Then when I went to get the $300 million, they wanted another five years. So I added the five and the five and the first five happened after one year. So five plus five plus one is 11 years. And after 11 years, I stepped down as chancellor and uh, and and let my successors take it on to a different level. And it's done very well since then. The university has continued to to grow and and prosper. And uh, I'm very pleased with where the university is today. Um, as a leader, you write it's important to allocate your time smartly because it's the most valuable commodity you have. For leaders of companies, there are so many things pulling at them from internal to the external. How do you advise leaders on prioritizing? Because you've got shareholders and you've got the internal stakeholders and you've got your customers. I mean, there's a lot going on and you experience this at the university. So what do you tell a leader to do in order to maximize? Because I think they feel frustrated that nothing's getting done because they're meeting doubt. Oh, well, I know it, at times you feel like you're on this whack-a-mole game of everything. You're, yeah. That's all you're doing is dealing with it today. And I, I thought that, uh, you know, the, the Eisenhower matrix, where you separate things out and to recognize the difference in important versus urgent, everybody thinks their issue is urgent. So you've got to step back and say, okay, on, on an important scale, which are the most important? which ones are not that important and just keep yourself focused on the important things. Uh, and then if they're urgent, they deal with them first, but then if, if they're, they're not important, but there's an urgency to it, then you let somebody else handle it. Uh, so that, that's the thing that you just are constantly having to make that, that choice. And, and I think that the leaders got to do, you can't really delegate that to someone else to figure out what your uh, agenda should be. And, and that's, that's the thing is the leaders most challenged by is deciding which are the things that are the most important. And Warren Buffett, I thought, put it really well when he said the most effective leaders are the ones who say no frequently. You've just got to say, no, we're not going to do that. We're just not going to say that, uh, that you, you can, being busy is not being effective. And so you have to go through and prune things. And we, I mean, farmers know that you got to prune in order to get better crops. Well, you've got to do that with your, your to-do list too. You got to have, take a lot of things off and put it on the to don't list. And that's, that's a big thing It's just do a few things and do them well. Just focus on that. Don't try to be all things for all people. Just make sure you're focused on the really important things and, and do that. Urgency is always in the mind of the, the requester. You're going to have to decide, is it really urgent for the organization or not? And if it is and it's important, then deal with it. If it's not important, but it is urgent, then delegate it to someone else to handle Got a question from the audience. We have more than 70% of the uh, neurodiverse community not complete higher education. 
why is there no university dedicated to neurodiverse community and have support infrastructure for them? I don't know the answer to that. I wish I did, but I don't know the answer to that. Uh, my, in my case, it, take Arkansas, was a population at the time less than that of metropolitan Atlanta. And I'd come from Georgia Tech and came and found that there were 10 four-year public universities in the state. There were 25 two-year colleges. The distance to get to the closest two or four-year public was something like less than seven miles. You could do it on a bicycle. And so what Arkansas had done was it had spread its peanut butter over too many crackers. It was putting the same amount of peanut butter out as the the state of Iowa was, but Iowa had only three four-year public universities. We had 10. And so I felt like that what the state was missing was a real strong research university, and we needed to, to elevate that. So I used a two-pronged strategy, association and differentiation. I then set about associating us with the top public universities in the country and differentiating ourselves from all the others in the state. And that association and differentiation strategy is what I use to try to, to focus the University of Arkansas as the flagship university and said there are two-year colleges and there are other four-year universities that should be able to meet the needs of people within the state. Um, many times, especially in early stage companies that aren't delivering on their numbers, investors get nervous and bring in a new leader. The new leader often replaces the entire existing team. You're not necessarily an advocate of this. Um, please tell us some of your thoughts on this. Yeah, well, I, th I think it's, well, the first thing you're going to do is you're going to create all kinds of uh, angst within the organization. You're going to create a whole list of enemies within the organization. And in so doing, you're probably going to throw out some people who are really quite good, but you need also some corporate memory. You need somebody on the team that has a good sense of history. And so I think you ought to take some time to, to get to know the people and find out what their strengths are and then make the decision. But you just shouldn't start out and assume that everybody there is just no good. My goodness, you know. That, that makes no sense <clears throat> because what's going to happen is whoever comes after you, they're going to do the same thing to all your people that you hire. I don't think that the organization, it would be sustainable over time if that's going to happen. So I, my feeling was, in fact, when I was being interviewed, I remember someone asked me, who are you bringing from Georgia Tech? I said, well, I'm coming from Georgia Tech, but my wife's going to be with me. <laughs> she's she's not going to be paid, uh, but she's going to be fully engaged in supporting me and helping me. Well, then later on, it turns out that there were two people that joined me from Georgia Tech, but that was through search processes that came up after a while, and two of them came in as deans. Uh, but then then I wound up actually making changes uh, in the organization, but I gave it a year. I said, I'm not going to do anything for a year. Now, I realize in some turnaround situations with corporations, you can't take a year, but you can take some time, and whether it's a quarter or two quarters, but you could take some time to just start off right at, at the outset and say, out you go, all of you, none of your 
that that's that sends a terrible message to the organization. So here's my last question for you. We have about a minute. Today, young people are looking to be inspired, but not every leader can be inspiring. How do you get the most out of young people when you might not be charismatic? Oh, I don't think that charismatic is required. I think what it is is letting people know that you care, that you're sincere, and that you really want to help them uh, accomplish and, and get the focus on them, not on you. I've said that I don't want to be known as the best leader of the team. I want to be known as the leader of the best team, that the focus has to be on the team, not the leader. And so that's just involve them, engage them, and they're going to step up and they're not going to be focused on whether you're charismatic or not. Well, I have to say the hour went fast. I greatly enjoyed the book. Uh, I hope you're mentoring a lot of other leaders and, you know, leadership, great leadership really hasn't changed in thousands of years, but bad leadership has found all kinds of ways of uh, destroying good leadership. So I hope that we're going to start to see better leadership around the globe and hopefully people will be reading your book and other great uh, leaders as well. So thank you so much for taking the time. Thank you, Mark. And thank you for what you're doing not only with best business minds, but also what you're going to be doing in Vietnam. Yeah, I'm super excited every day. And it's been great working. I just finished my first class with the students and some of them wrote me the nicest notes. So it makes me feel real good to be here. Yeah, well done. Well, everybody have a wonderful weekend. We'll look forward to seeing you all next week. You take care now. Take care. Have a good weekend. Bye-bye, everyone. Bye. Thank you for listening to another episode of The Best Business Minds. Tune in every Friday at 12 p.m. Eastern Time for our live recordings. Go to www.thebestbusinessminds.com for more information and follow us on LinkedIn and Twitter to be kept up to date with our upcoming guests and other bonus material. See you next time.